I'm David Kern. I'm Heidi White. And this is Close Reads, a podcast for the incurable reader. We're here to discuss Marilyn Robinson's home. We're going to discuss pages 50 to 100, roughly. Now, we've been reading it in segments of about that much time. But first, Heidi, how's it going? What's going on with you? Well, I am doing great, um, except for I'm reading this really sad book. <laughs> so, reading Anna Karenina again, are you? That's right. Can't get enough. <laughs> so Home is a pretty sad book, but I want to talk about uh, degrees of sadness in a minute. Uh, before we do that, though, I need to remind you about our friends over at Scully Academy because they are making the uh, Close Reads podcast possible during the month of September 2020. In case you forgot what year it is. You can discover classical restful tutoring online with Scola Academy's personalized tutoring services. Scola Academy's team of master teachers and classical tutors is available year-round to help your students find confidence and delight in their studies. Choose from supplemental tutoring or private full-course instruction in subject areas such as Latin, writing, grammar, mathematics, logic, history, and more. Pricing and schedule are... Pricing and scheduling are flexible. I almost made it through, Heidi. Something always trips me up. And it was the word scheduling of all the words. You did a great job. (sighs) But anyway, those two things are flexible. So head over to scholeacademy.com. And of course, that's S-C-H-O-L-E academy.com to learn more and to submit a tutoring request. They have a great program over there. Good friends of ours. And we are grateful to them for sponsoring the show and for their existence because they are helping all of us be better classical uh, educators. So... If you are in that realm, if you're in the world of classical education or you have kids that need some extra tutoring or supplemental help, uh, check them out. Okay, so I have two questions this week that I want to talk about. Uh, one of them is this question of sadness, or at least this assertion that this book is sad, which I'm not going to take issue with the idea that it's sad, but I think right. it might be interesting to discuss what makes it so sad. And differing perspectives on the degrees of sadness. And then also I have a question about uh, forgiveness. And I want to start there because I think maybe that'll bring us into the question of sadness a little bit later on. And of course, if you have anything that you want to bring up, it's close to read. So, you know, throw it out right. there whenever you want. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, before we dive into my question about forgiveness, I want to remind you, um, our friend, our, you know, our, our colleague here, Tim is, is not joining us for this, this series because he's in the process of relocating back home to Georgia and he's uh, helping his family. His dad's dealing with some health problems. So I just want to remind you to keep the McIntosh family uh, and Tim and his dad and mom in particular in your prayers uh, and, to, uh, and to remember them. But also, yesterday was his birthday. September 15th was Tim's birthday. He and Agatha Christie. So be sure to, uh, to wish Tim a happy birthday. You can wish Agatha Christie a happy birthday too as well, but it might be... Beyond the grave. It's appropriate for Agatha Christie, but it might be a challenge. <laughs> um, so happy birthday to Tim. We love you and uh, we miss you here on the show and look forward to you being back for the next book. Okay, let's talk about home. Forgiveness. Because we talked last week, I mentioned how it's got a prodigal son, you know, allusions to the prodigal son parable. And somebody posted a really interesting comment mm-hmm. on the Facebook page in response to that. And I don't know that they were disagreeing. They were just saying that it doesn't seem to them like Jack is seeking forgiveness in his return home. Whereas in the parable in the gospels, it seems pretty clear that the prodigal son comes back desperate for uh, the forgiveness of his father. Right. So I wanted to ask, throw that question out to you. Uh, do you think that Jack is after forgiveness? 
And of course, we're only 100 pages in, so this is a question we can come back to. But what's your impression through these first 100 pages about that question? It's a good question to ask right now because I haven't read this book before and I haven't read ahead at all this mm-hmm. time. And so I, I can't... I can't speak from knowledge. I really am only speaking from impressions, which isn't always true. And right. when we, when we have these conversations, <laughs> um, so I, well, it's an educated impression, right? I think it's a complicated question to answer. I'm not trying to dodge it. Um, it's complex because I think that Jack is very, yeah, I do think that he wants to be forgiven, but I also think that he's so mired in shame that mm. he might even be unwilling to acknowledge uh, his desire for it. And he certainly seems unwilling or unable to engage uh, with feeling like he deserves it. Mm. Okay, this is going to be a very teacherly, show your work sort of question. Right. <laughs> so forg- forgive me. When you say that he is mired in shame, I think was the phrase you used. Mm-hmm. Where do you see that showing up? Like, where does that most stand out for you as you've been reading? Uh, I mean, that's a really good question. <laughs> um, and I can't, I can't point to chapter and verse. Um, no, that's fair. It's, a, it's an impression I get from his uh, silences and mm. um, just the general family dynamic of, uh, of secret keeping and this they're so offended by each other all the time. They're always hurting each other's feelings and they can't, um, there's just this like sense of lingering pain that manifests in these endless small offenses against Mm. each other. Yeah. And And they feel like they're always walking on eggshells or like there's this tension. Like every time you turn around a corner, you're going to bump into someone in a way that's going to, to offend them. Yeah. Hurt their, feelings, hurt their feelings, somehow trigger something, yeah. um, remind them of something. Uh, and, and that, and then his, so I think there's that, which I, I'm connecting that with shame. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. And then also his body language and his constant apologizing hmm. um, and his body, his hands shaking and, mm-hmm. So there's definitely a strong undercurrent of emotion that's connected with offending people and saying sorry. And to me, that is shame. So I am making an assumption, but I think it's a pretty solid one. I don't know. What do you think? Um, I think you're right. And I, I think there's the stuff when he's talking about how, how people remember him, like how Ames remembers him and how he's saying something like, well... He, he, well, he says he went to go visit him. And he said the one thing that Ames made clear was that he didn't like him. Yeah. And so one thing I've been thinking a lot about is, well, it's, it's one of the things you think about with any novel, I suppose, it's, or you should be, um, which sounds like a more of a judgy comment than I meant it to be, but it's the idea of perspective and point right. of view. Like it's the, the fundamental tool of storytelling. And there's this sense that we get the story mostly through glory right Mm -hmm. and yet the narrator sometimes steps outside of glory to give us a sense of who she is but most of the story is from her perspective and so there's the sense that even she who is not the prodigal is worried about offending jack not just that jack is worried about offending 
her or their father. And she, of all people, seems to be feeling like she has to tread lightly. Right. Um, because she doesn't want to scare him away. And it's like she feels like she has to preserve his or the possibility of reconciliation between her brother and her father. Right. And so it makes me wonder how much of the tension is okay. So I'm trying to say this in a way that doesn't seem like I'm reading into it too much or making drama where there's not drama, but how much of the tension is in her fear? How much right. of the tension is in her reading into things? How much of the tension is in, in her lack of um, knowing how to interact around the two of them? Right. And then her also feeling less than herself, right? Like there's that really poignant moment where she's early on in this section where she sees Jack pick her father up and bring him upstairs. Mm -hmm. And she kind of realizes that he can be useful in a way that she cannot. Um, and then she was sort of just like keeping things warm until Jack got there to, to kind of swoop in. Right. And that she, she says something like how she hated her life. Like there's literally that line where it ends, ends a, ends a little section in the book. And she says that she, but then that she moment, lay in bed she, before dawn and hated her life. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, and so I'm wondering how much of what we're getting out of the book is colored by her own fears and anxieties and dare I say even psychological issues. Mm -hmm. And so you like may dare in a book like this, you can <laughs> dare to say that anytime you want. <laughs> which is not to say that obviously which is not to say that Jack is not without his own problems. Mm -hmm. but how much of it is glory bringing her anxieties to the table? Right. Well, I, I think that that's, I think you're onto something that's core to the novel, which is the question of what is, uh, what's actually happening in the relational dynamics and what is in each character's head. And here we're yeah. only inside of glory's head, yeah. but she's, <laughs> Through her perceptions and impressions, Marilyn Robinson tells us a lot about what's going on inside of the inside of their father and inside of Jack as well. Mm -hmm. And and I think that we're meant to get lost in that in this book. I think we're supposed to kind of go into the rabbit hole of that and mm. swim around and try to like a find, big old house or something. Yeah. I, well, home, right? There's a there's this line on page 88. We have the same edition, right? Yeah, and I was open to 90 already, so wow. magic. Wow, that was serendipitous. At the top, oh man, these two sentences. Man, she's a beautiful writer, isn't she? It seemed sometimes as if her father must have meant to preserve all this memory, this sheer power of sameness, so that when they came home or when Jack came home, there would be no need to say anything. In the terms of the place, they would all always have known everything. Mm. There's this culture of unsaid things. And um, it, she talks mm. about how Jack walks around and touches everything, you know, like their mother's chair and the, the lamps, it's um, like, the lampshade. Go ahead. Sorry. Yeah. And that it's the preservation of the silence that, to their father feels like home but like that he's intentionally she seems to be saying that she's interpreting this as his intentional 
choice to preserve this silence in the mm. sameness of the home. And that that, of course, is an objective correlative or a manifestation even of their internal world in which things are left unsaid and undone and they're packed away. And, mm. um, and, and yet they're also the space they inhabit all the time. You know, this is their home, is this preservation of the silence um, so that all the artifacts, all the memories, everything that they're walking around touching is um, kind of colluding in this culture of unsaid things. It's so interesting to associate memory with things with the like, because you remember, you don't have to say something. Right. And, and of course, that's being that, that quietness, that silence, that those unsaid things are being contrasted with all these memories she has of, of the, you know, boisterous, boi- boisterous boys and crazy dinner tables and checkers games right. that get so ruckus that her father has to go over to Ames' house to get his, you know, Greek and Latin studied. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's, you know, so he keeps around the, the sort of remnants of that life. And so when they talk about the idea of not having to say things, do you think that the idea is he doesn't have to name the memories? He doesn't have to bring them up again because they're too painful. It's too painful to try to go back and relive them. Or what, what's the end goal of her father doing that? The the end goal of, as you said, as you read, must have meant to preserve all this memory so that when they came home, there would be no need to say anything. In other words, I guess the question is why does he feel this need to not have to, for no one to be able to say anything or need to need to say anything when they get home? Right. I think that that's what he associates with forgiveness. I Hmm. think to him, forgiving Jack means we never have to talk about this again. It's done. Oh, this is so good because of what comes right after it. Right. And I, I think that that, I mean, I, I have thoughts on whether or not I agree with that. Strongly don't. Strong no. But <laughs> I think that that to him is his gift to his children. And I, I think it backfires. So anyway, mm. go. What were well, you going to say? I was just, connect it with. I was just going to connect it with the end of this section where mm. they get the TV, which of course yeah. brings language or whatever. But then... As they're watching the TV, Jack says something which offends his father. Yeah. The cursing, as he, as he calls it, you know, uh, and most people would. Um, and then there's this line where they're talking, they end up talking about forgiveness, which takes us deeper back to the original question that I was asking. I'm trying to find it where he says, well, his father says, at the bottom of 97, his father shifted in his... Okay, it says police were rushing the black crowds with back with dogs, turning the fire hoses on them. Jack said, he said, Jesus Christ, his father shifted in his chair. That kind of language has never been acceptable in this house. It's interesting, side note, that she chooses to have him curse using that, those, that phrase instead of some other phrase that someone might have used. Right, and that Jack kind of opens his mouth to say that, right? Right. We think maybe yeah, he's yeah. like... Uh, I'm not allowed to talk about Jesus, yeah, but exactly. he knows what his father means. Of course, so, right. Yes. But, but Marilyn Robinson also knows that like, in a way, it's a Bowden would have, would have wanted Jack to say those words more than any other words. Right. And he says them in the way that Bowden can't, is not okay with. Mm-hmm. So then it continues. He stops himself. He says, sorry. 
Um, the old man said, I do believe it is necessary to enforce the law. The apostle Paul says we should do everything decently and in order. You can't have people running around the streets like that. Jack snapped off the TV. He said, sorry, I was just kind of... And then it shows off. Then Bowden says, no need to be sorry, Jack. Young people want the world to change and old people want it to say the same. And who is to judge between thee and me? We just have to forgive each other. And then this is really interesting to me because it says Mm -hmm. after a moment, he said, so the implication there is there is this long silence. And so I love that you tied this notion of silence and forgiveness together. Like you don't have to express forgiveness to forgive someone. Is that what you were kind of getting at? Yeah, I think this is an, this, this conversation you're pointing out so perfect. I didn't even connect to it, but yeah, I, I mean, that is what I'm saying. And that it, forgiveness means we don't have to have painful conversations about hard things, mm-hmm. which is exactly mm-hmm. what he claims here, right? You're, if you forget, uh, and who is to judge between the and me, we just have to forgive each other. After a moment, he said, but I hope we don't have to argue. Mm-hmm. I don't like the shouting and I don't like the swearing, mm-hmm. right? So instead of what he, I mean, maybe it would be good for them to argue about this issue. Maybe that right. would create a connection. Maybe it would open up a, a real conversation versus this, you know, pres- you know, museum of silences that is their home. Mm. The museum of silences. That's good. I've been thinking a lot about the idea of forgiveness in general, and the, and I've been thinking about the the idea that you you can't fight someone and forgive them at the same time. Hmm. you can't wage a war against them and forgive them at the same time. And so there's this balance between like this thing that I'm, well, let me say, I mean, that's, that's what I've been thinking about. Maybe that's not true. That's just the conclusion that I've been coming to Mm -hmm. in thinking about the notion of forgiveness. I mean, I think we see it a lot with, you see with your children, with someone who's very close to you, a a spouse or something like that. When you have, when you, when you, you, when you allow yourself to the urge to fight back, it's like, counter to the, to the idea of forgiving someone. Like you can't forgive someone just because you finally won the battle, right? Mm-hmm. And when someone wrongs you, you can't, like what, mm-hmm. you, can't, you can't spew back against them. You can't fight back and also be f- acting in a way that is an example of forgiving them. Huh. And so I was thinking about that in connection with this book. Um, I mean, it didn't start with this book. It, you know, everyone deals with relationships right. all the time right. where you feel like you have to forgive someone or you need to be forgiven by someone. I mean, that's called being married. Right. Um, yeah. and, and so I was thinking about that and then came across this passage here and you, and you're saying the idea that maybe they need to just talk it out. Maybe they need, maybe be healthy for them to kind of have it out is really interesting because it seems like then there's like this balance between working the, towards where you can, talking enough to get to the point where you can um, get to a point where you can forgive one another, Mm -hmm. but then also you have to find a way you can't be in a posture of fighting and forgiveness at the same time. Right. Like you can't be in a posture of aggression and a posture of forgiveness at the same time. You might even say that like a posture of aggression is like, I don't know, like it's almost counter. It's like the opposite almost. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I was thinking about that, like, what's the balance here in this book? Because in a sense, there is a, there is a sense in which I find Bouton's approach to be sort of 
noble. Like he wants it that his son does not have to come to him and kiss his feet, right? And and beg for forgiveness because he wants him to come home and see you are you're forgiven. You don't like that's mm-hmm. let's pick up where we left off. Let's try to make this better, whatever however you want to put it. But then at the same time, there does seem to be a sense that they both need to to have a conversation. So right. how do you I mean, part of this, maybe this is me asking right. you this as like a reader and also as a counselor. <laughs> but mm-hmm. how do you read that? Maybe I'm just no. I far so this here. goes to like how to how to read a book, right? One of the greatest gifts that books gives me, um, especially a book like this, mm-hmm. is it gives me the ability to <laughs> to displace something very personal onto mm. the characters of a book and mm-hmm. then in a sense like talk about myself and my own ideas and my own story through talking about the book right I yeah. think that's a great gift of literature and I yeah. think that that's helps us understand ourselves yes exactly it helps us find ourselves and, and everybody I, else I really like what you're saying about the posture of aggression and fighting um, and not being compatible with forgiveness but I also think that there's an order or a ritual to forgiveness. And sometimes that requires the gift and the trust of saying, I have something to say to you. I'm mad at you and you hurt me. And I have emotions about that because to, to take a memory, it's like, you know, they've got their house full of unmoved objects that represents this lifetime. Um, But they're all, they're different, but the house is the same. Right. And, and so, and so it doesn't allow, this culture doesn't allow them to be different, doesn't allow them to grow. And, and that would mean messing up the house, mm. right? And, and I think that that's part of the decorum or the ritual of forgiveness is to say, like, I'm really mad at you right now. We have to talk about that. And then comes the forgiveness, right? Because uh, it's because con- forgiveness, true forgiveness, I think, should be connected with intimacy, which requires sometimes raw emotion. And and I think that in this the case of these characters, that's that's true. Um, that I mean, even the conversation they have right after the one when they're watching the TV together, um, that he has with Glory, mm-hmm. Jack has with Glory at yeah, the like very end. Right at the very end, yeah. Right. Um, it's, I man, I just. It's so sad because this is such an opportunity for them to actually talk to each other, which is what they all want, right? Like he's, he says, can I ask you something? And she immediately shuts him down. Her next word shuts him down. Probably that's a message, right? That's don't ask me about my, why I'm here. Well, I don't he want to talk about. Cause he says it's right? not personal. Yes. He's like, don't worry. So, Yes, but then it is personal because it's about him, which is what he really wants to talk about. Because mm-hmm. that's what everybody wants to talk about. They want somebody to ask them questions and they want to talk about themselves. So then it's, it's nothing if not personal. It's just not about her. <laughs> yes. He's saying, okay, I won't, I won't pry. hurt you. You know, I won't pry, whatever. Um, and and then they have this lovely conversation about repentance versus regret, but mm-hmm. not once does she ask him, like, tell me about your life. Like, because she doesn't mm-hmm. want to talk. He doesn't want to talk. The dad wasn't. And yet they're so lonely and sad and disconnected. So someone's got to go in that house and start moving the stuff around. That's, 
Yeah. Well, I mean, in a way the TV starts kind of does that. Yep. Um, and they're sort of part of the, part of the first hundred pages of this book is them learning how to move around, around each other. Yes. Like that's super insightful within Mm -hmm. the context of what's there already. You can't start moving stuff until you figure out what's the problem. Right. And like, Mm -hmm. they probably haven't gotten to the point where they really recognize, you know, what we need to do is start do some spring cleaning. We need to open some shades and, you know, do some dusting and, you know, rearrange a living room. Uh, as someone who likes to rearrange like twice a year, this is very, you know, speaks, speaks to me. Um, but also like, it's, it's very sad, but there is also this sense that like, if we, if we kind of follow along with your idea here, they're making more progress. Yeah. They're moving towards each other. At least that's what I'm seeing. At right. This point. Because, you know, he and his father, Jack and Boughton are moving towards each other in a very different way. And one of the things that sort of like, like Jack is very, he's very humble. He's, he's absolutely humbling himself to his father. Mm. He's saying things that he's saying, yes, sir. Like he's a little kid, right? Mm. He's saying he's, he's, there's lots of scenes where he's bending down. He's, he's doing things that um, are, you know, laborious and things like that. And at the same time, Boughton is having to, having to begrudgingly humble himself by saying, look, I'm an, I can't take care of myself anymore. I, mm-hmm. And he allows Jack to help him. And in doing that, they're reaching out for each other. Similarly, you know, bit by bit, Glory and Jack are sort of reaching for each other. And they're at least trying to have conversations. And to me, one of the things that it speaks to is the idea that every person is so different. Every relationship is so different. The demands of what, how you connect with people are so different, even with people who are in your family. Mm-hmm. And, and the way that, that years work on you and the things that they do to a relationship are unique to every relationship. Right. And the way you finally connect is just, there's no, there's no handbook for that. Um, there's nothing that they can come home and be like, well, let's turn to page 14, connect, reconnecting with your sister. <laughs> um, right. You know, it's, it's in every way the opposite of that. And it's like fits and starts, stopping and starting and trying to come to an understanding of each other. And when neither of you want to be an open book, that coming to an understanding is extremely difficult. And that's one of the secrets to the first half of this book to me is that she doesn't want to reveal herself to him even right. more than he doesn't want to reveal himself to her. I totally agree. I think your point about yes. how she says this probably, like the way it cuts him off is one of the more poignant little words of the book and some genius writing because if any, she has to be willing to open herself up to just as much as he does has to be willing to, to say, you know, forgive me. I totally agree. Yeah. And she does it over and over again, which she's the older brother in the parable. And it is, I think, brilliant to write this perspective from the, from the older brother, because um, the, the older brother is the most closed off and the least attractive character in the story. Um, And so that is, I think it's a powerful perspective and a risky one on Marilyn Robbins' part to write it from Glory's perspective. Um, but she does it multiple times. There's another instance of it when Jack is, uh, and Jack out of all of them is the one attempting to have a real relationship and actual, actual conversations, but he's missing something that I'll say in a second. Yeah. Um, that, but on the bottom of page 92, they have this 
conversation. They're gardening together, which is a lovely metaphor. Um, he tossed his cigarette and went back to delving. That was a little flippant, she thought. She went into the kitchen to peel <laughs> yeah. potatoes for a salad. After a while, he came into the porch in the kitchen and stood by the door. I'm sorry, he said. What for? When we were talking just now, I think it may, I may have seemed flippant. No, not at all. Right? He actually comes in and reads her mind and says the exact thing and mm-hmm. apologizes for it. And she shuts him down. Yeah. Like she is so angry at him and unsure and wounded herself, very wounded. How, how do you read that no, not at all line? Like, well, I guess, I guess what I mean is what kind of tone of voice, like, is it because you could read it as being her being sarcastic or her just yeah, kind of being dismissive? But she takes it, he takes it, excuse me, he takes it at face value. His next. Right. Right. That's good. I didn't, I didn't mean to. I can never be sure, which that is Jack in a nutshell, right? He can never be sure about anything ever. Yeah. Um, there's another line when to. he says, there's not exactly, there's another line when he says, um, I'm always happy to follow the house rules. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's that like, that's, he's the one starting conversations and glory shuts him down and, um, and Bouton acts like a father is overly welcoming, overly effusive. And Jack mm-hmm. feels like it's fake, but yeah. The thing that Jack's missing that everybody needs to hear is exactly the thing that he can't feel that we ended we ended the reading on, which is a really good choice on ending the reading right there, by the way, David. When he's when he's like, I can't repent. That's what everybody needs from him. And he can't do it. So that's his block to relationship. Like he's hurt them so badly and he can't repent. That's really sad. One of the big questions to the book, though, at this, at, while that is true, is also to what degree is it actually his fault? Right. Because, Agreed. like, what, what, come, what becomes into focus over the last 25 pages of this section or so is the way that they have never figured out how to reach him, how to make him a part of the order of things. And that, you know, mm-hmm. there's that she realized, she recognizes the poignancy of um, the way he plays baseball, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the way he, when, when he, when they're playing baseball, he's graceful and he's a part of things and he's, you know, there's an order of things that he, he seems connected himself. to. And he, yeah. yeah. He forgets himself. But outside of that, he doesn't know how to participate in the order of the home. And they have never figured out ever to this day, how to help him be a part of it. Mm-hmm. And it seems like now what's what's happening is this is the chance to find a way to help him be a part of it. And she seems to recognize that. Like she seems to recognize that this is an opportunity for her to help do that, but she doesn't know how she doesn't know how to do it still. And so it's like so one of the questions is obviously he made huge mistakes, but how much you, this is not a book that lets people off the hook for their mistakes, but also right. it recognizes that mistakes and the ways that right. we hurt each other don't happen in a yeah. vacuum. Right, exactly. He's not the only one. He's the scapegoat. He carries the sins of the whole family. And um, and his sins are real. Like that's the thing about a Marilyn yeah. Robinson book. The things, the sins that we commit are real and they have effects, but they don't occur in a vacuum. Right, yes. And that I think that's why he's, you know, he's so careful. He just tiptoes around everything. He wants to follow all the rules. He doesn't want to make any more trouble, but he can't. And he, he, he can't and won't repent. 
he can regret that's different as he says in the book. Um, and then, but I just found it so compelling Glory's memory of her father telling her and her siblings to just make it easy on Jack to be home. Right. Like, don't mm-hmm. tell him the truth. Like, don't, don't just make it easy on him to be home. And that is a very, very common, very common mistake to in, in families in which the, the prodigal child gets to control the family dynamics and then everybody else is overlooked and forgotten. Mm. Right? And that's, I mean, that definitely happened in their home. She says that the story of our family is that we tried to keep Jack and lost him and he never came back. And that's the story of our family, no matter what else happened. Mm. Mm. Do you like Jack? Yes. What do you find likable about him? Because we talked about um, this last week, yeah. how Bethany's like one of his, one of her favorite characters. Bethany, my wife, is one of her <laughs> favorite literary characters. And he's in other stories in the series as well, but, or in the Marilyn Robinson books. But what, what makes him compelling for you? Um, so this is one of those cases in which I'm displacing my own story onto a literary character. I'm like totally the Jack of my family. So, um, so part of it is that like, and, and I think that's one of the things that makes this story really interesting. There's another really good comment on the Facebook page today about, uh, one of, one of the listeners saying, I like, is it normal that I'm reading this book and thinking about my own family? Yes, that's, I think, part of the invitation of a novel like this that I was, it's funny, David, I was texting with your mom, I was texting with Karen Kern earlier today about the book and saying it just has this different quality of sadness than Hemingway, which we just read, Mm -hmm. because Hemingway has this like worldly sadness, like it carries the weight of of the world and of outside relationships, but this is a family sadness. There's a particularity to that and there's a universality to this. Exactly. And, um, and it's, it, not every family has this dynamic, but every family has some kind of, of brokenness in it. Then, and, and generally there's somebody in the family that carries the weight of that and doesn't know how to deal with that because it's too much for a child to carry that. A child cannot carry that and it will break them and the family. And, and that, dynamic is something I have a lot of compassion on and Mm. the care and I, and I have a great admiration for Jack to have the courage to come home after 20 years and to immerse himself in the family and to like touch his father, like hold him that closely and pick him up and care for him and um, be in his vulnerability Mm. without displaying his own like that. I, I think it's very courageous of him. Um, to carry the weight of that at mm. this point in his life when now he has just a pile of regrets and nobody's talking to him about them. Mm. Yeah, I mean, that. I think that's one of the things about this book is that for all its sadness, it sort of is also, its sadness is wrapped around little acts of, I would say chivalry, but that's like too, they are too small. Like these little acts, these like little, um, acts of small courage or something like that, mm-hmm. because it does take courage to do to do what you're saying. Yeah. You know, like um, there are these little acts of humility, and it's and and then it's people stretching for the ability to do more acts like that, 
or to know what kind of act is the right act to do next. And so it's, and part of the sadness comes in the inability to connect when you reach. It's people who are finally working up the courage to do something and the humility to, to try to connect with somebody. But then when, they, when you kind of pass in a hallway and don't actually connect, that's like where the sadness yeah. comes from. There is sadness, of course, in the years that were lost in the story of Jack and, and the girl right. when they're teenagers um, in, in things that were left unsaid previously. <clears throat> but, you know, what makes this, this, that sort of sadness linger for us as readers is these people who are reaching. They can't quite, can't quite get there. Right. Um, but that they're reaching also keeps it from being hopeless. Hmm. Yeah, that's true. I do think they're moving towards each other. Their conversations are taking on a greater depth as we go. And I don't know how the story ends. <laughs> and I don't know whether or not Jack is secretly drinking but Glory does say she doesn't see signs of it. Mm-hmm. And that's a courageous thing too. But I also think he, in his courage, there's still this shield that he always has up, this radar that is always, like he's in a, he seems to me to be in like a constant state of fight or flight response all the time um, in his interactions with his family. And and he does hurt them and he doesn't say the thing they need to hear, which is, I was wrong. I'm so sorry. How can I make this right? Like, which, Do you think he's point, waiting for them to say something? I don't know what he's waiting for yet. Maybe, and he might just be protecting himself. Who knows? Like, I mean, when people are that traumatized, like they don't know what they want, you know? So I don't, <clears throat> I don't know yet. I don't have a sense of what Jack really wants but I I think I do have a sense of what Gloria and Boughton want which is they want Jack to be repentant and then they want to forgive well, him and they want to have a relationship with him but at the same time you said that that you know Boughton uh, was you pointed out Boughton wants the home to be a place where those things don't need to be said yeah so is there like is yep. that a double standard is that maybe is that what's happening an internal contradiction maybe so yeah I guess that's the better what phrase what do you think I mean what are what are your thoughts on that I think they can both be true, but Bowden definitely wants to still parent. Like he's still, he's grieving about how old and feeble he is too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He's grieving the, you know, what he lost the years that he lost with Jack and also <laughs> that he's not going to be able to participate in, you know, sh- should Jack get restored, the, the participation in the family with Jack as a part of it is not going to last very long. Right. One of the things that's, I think, really important too, or really at least really smart storytelling-wise, is to have Jack's secrets hovering over the novel. So who's this mysterious phone call with? Is he sneaking booze? Is he, you know, what does he do when he goes out, you know, on his walks? Um, what were the conversations like with, with Jack? I mean, with, um, with, with uh, Ames. So there's all these, he's, he remains this mystery to everybody, including Bowden mm-hmm. and Glory. And that, that keeps, that, that like adds a, um, you know, page turning element to it as well. Cause you, you cause you want to know, like, is he, is he is hiding he away? Is he, is he in trouble? Is he hiding? Is there, you know, is, is there really, what's the, this dog thing? Is this a metaphor? Is it like, you know, is there, is there, right. it, when he says it was really a dog, was it really a dog? And who's he yelling at on the phone? And, you know, Who is she, Mrs. Johnson. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and of course, 
Bouton is desperately wants to know that too. So right. he doesn't, he's like, why is, she, why is he yelling at faith? Um, <laughs> which is a hilarious line, honestly. Yep. <laughs> um, like <laughs> that irony in all of those, I just, it just seems like it'd be really fun to write. <laughs> There's something, I don't know, something I kind of like when I read, why is he yelling at faith or however she phrases that line? It, it felt like one of those lines that was like, bear with me as I say a terrible, as I make a terrible pun. Yep. That Marilyn Robinson was predestined to write. <laughs> I just kept thinking, boom, boom. of course, the Calvinist, you know, that was like the, the idea right. of she was destined to write the line that he's yelling at faith. <laughs> um, and of course, she plays off that the whole time. Like, she does. Like, you Glory born herself, to break your father's heart. And Glory herself recognizes yeah. the absurdity of their names in a way. Mm. Like, it's, it's both does. something that, like, they were given these names as a sort of, aspirational thing right but they're also abstract mm-hmm. and thus you really can't reach for them they're like right. impossible to ever really live up to right um what do they even mean right like right. my name is glory <laughs> yeah which of course i mean lots of people you know i, I had a friend growing up named yeah. glory um yeah. so we're not judging you if you named your daughter's glory right. or faith but but, right. it, but you know, within the context of the story right identity right, right. Yeah. yeah yeah and so to say why is jack yelling or about yelling the line about his son to his sis, to his to his daughter. Why is she yelling at Faith? You know what I mean. Why is he yelling at Faith? Right. Is uh, a little bit of um, genius on Marilyn Robinson's part, I think. Um, and she's so good at that kind of thing because it tethers yeah. it to the themes of the book so richly, but also just could all it can also be read as another bit of, you know, exposition almost. You right. know, we're it's in the moment when we're getting deeper into the mystery of Jack. And wait, who's this person off stage? What's he doing when he's right. not there? That his father yells this line, why is Jack yelling at Faith? That, you know, it's, it's right. just, I think Which it's kind of a genius bit of writing. Isn't, right? Like but, that's yeah. the thing that's right. to your point. Like this, Bouton's constantly consumed with this fear that Jack is an apostate, right? Yeah. And he's yeah. he's not he's not truly saved. He's going to, he's going to, his yeah. vessel created for destruction. Right. And, and that's like his deep fear. That's which, such a great point. Oh, and and Jack isn't yelling at Faith. He's dealing right. with his own stuff. Right. Like, so. <laughs> yeah, right. He's not yelling at he's not yelling at Faith or Glory or right. any other abstract idea that his father is is terrified that he's going to run away yes. from. Um. Yes. Well, in Glory, she just wants she just wants to be seen, right? Which that does speak to her name. Hmm. Like she just. She feels lost with Jack there. But, but okay, but I was thinking about this. In some ways, it seems like he sees her in a way that Boughton doesn't. Mm-hmm. Boughton is consumed by his loss. And so Jack coming home is a hope for him because it might restore what he lost. He never truly lost Glory. And having right. not lost her, he doesn't really see her. Yeah. And he doesn't see what's right in front of him. Um, and Jack recognizes that she also is hurting, right? Mm-hmm. And like, so for example, when he says it's nothing personal, he says that because he recognizes she doesn't want to talk about what she's been through. Right. Um, and, and in fact, Bowden's a little flippant, to borrow the, the word from earlier in the book, mm-hmm. about Glory's life. You know, he's a little bit, I don't want to say unkind, but he's a little bit um, direct yeah. about the fact that Glory's been through some stuff in a way that doesn't carry the sympathy that the way he talks about Jack carries. Um, right. And I think that that is one of the things that makes Jack compelling is that he sees in his sister that she's been through some stuff too. 
Yeah. And he's, and that's, I think, why he feels like he can reach out for her. But of course, this is just making, I'm just realizing this. When they most connect, when they most reach for each other, they're not even, they're not inside. Hmm. They're not in huh. the house. Like they're that's out in the garden, right? Like they have, yes. like they have these conversations. Um, and then he had, and then she goes inside, like this conversation you were talking about, the where, where they, where they, dance around this idea of flippancy they're outside he says something which she feels is flippant so she goes inside right i'm remembering how this works yeah no you're right and then he has to come back in to say something and they have this sort of they're having this sort of like disconnect in the kitchen like right in the doorway you know almost and so the way they dance the, the way their relationship goes and fits and starts sometimes inside sometimes outside sometimes in the garden where they're pulling weeds and that's where they're most tender as well. Right. Um, she's most tender directly to him. You know, she fixes his hand out mm-hmm. in the garden. Um, they have some conversations. Whereas when they're inside, it's there's this huh. there's this yeah. barrier between Unsaid them. Things. And it, yeah, there's inability to say things. And it's like, and I wonder if there's like this hauntedness that gets this like haunted veil that's between huh. them. And that veil is going to have to dissipate you know that hauntedness is going to have to dissipate between them at least for them for their connection to be strengthened ratified right (laughs) what's the word i don't know i don't what is the word for made real right (laughs) realified um but no that's that's really insightful and i hadn't noticed that and i think that that's got to be intentional that's one of those did they do it on purpose yes um (laughs) <laughs> but, but I like the fact that it's Jack that takes the initiative in the garden too to clear things out. Because um, mm-hmm. she like says, she, I was thinking about just letting it go. Yeah, she doesn't want to because she doesn't think her father would want her to. And, um, and he just does it anyway. But he still keeps, he doesn't tear down all the vines. It's the trumpet vines because she says that um, Bouton likes the hummingbirds. Um, and... And Jack just does it anyway, but he just clears them. He doesn't cut them all down. He just clears them out. And and I think that that's something that Jack has probably always offered to the family is that it's an invitation to clear out the weeds, right? And I have a question um, about one of these passages. Can I ask? Can yeah, I read it and then ask please. you about it? Because I want your opinion on this. Okay, so on page 90, it's just, I want to read this paragraph. Okay. The very bottom, the section that starts at the bottom there. Okay. The next morning, Jack was out in the garden early, cutting back weeds and spading up the soil. The old prairie came back the minute a spot of ground fell into neglect. Suddenly, there would be weeds head high, gaunt shafts of plants with masses of tiny flowers on them, dusty lavender droning with bees. And there would be black-eyed Susan and nettles and milkweed and jewelweed and brambles and some avid vine that wilted in sunlight and broke at the slightest touch, leaving tiny whiskers of thorn in the hand that touched it. The roots they put down there were deep and tough. It was miserable work to get them up. And here was Jack outside in the new morning light, wrestling weeds out of the ground for all the world as if something depended on it. Glory made a pot of coffee and carried a cup of it out to him. Okay, let's. so I was thinking about this passage and it feels essential to me. Mm-hmm. It feels like this gardening is as many things that we turn to when we are in real life. We often turn to things when we're troubled that are helping us cope with things and end up being metaphors for the things that we're going through. It's not just in literature (laughs) that these things are made, these metaphors are used. So it feels 
like she is, Marilyn Robinson is commenting on the action of the book so far. Particularly uh, these lines, the roots they put down were deep and tough. It was miserable work to get them up. So what I'm trying to figure out is, are the roots that he's trying to pull up here representative of the positive roots that a family sets down, that they're deep and tough and thus they're hard to get out? Or are they, is it miserable work to get them up because the roots that are deep and tough here are um, the negative things that they've all been through that, are, that have so settled into their earth, into the soil of their family that they're impossible to get up without a great deal of pain. I mean, in a way, I found this to be foreshadowing, but I can't figure out if she's making it a positive or a negative thing. I interpreted it as weeds being like the the latter, the second option, the sins of the family, the dysfunctions, and the pathologies of their family that were that have you know blossomed and grown and overgrown the garden. Um, yeah. So go on. Well, I mean. It's just, it's a, you know, the old prairie came back the minute a spot of ground fell in, into neglect is, is a interesting, interesting line. And I, I think that um, one of the things I've been trying to figure out is why does he come home? Like, why right. does he feel like he can come home despite everything? Is it just that he, is it truly just that he's at his wit's end? Or has there been some, does he recognize that in this family, there is still a rootedness to which he is tethered? That he, and Great thus question. that he can come home. Like, is it pure desperation or is there a sense of, of hope and longing there in him because he believes that there might still be something that he belongs to? That's such a great question. I do think that there is a rootedness. Like, this was a good family, a loving family. Um, mm-hmm. and, yeah, despite everything. Right. They were, and... And I think that's maybe my, I'm sorry, I'm going to go off on a small tangent, but I'm going to come back. Do it. Um, (laughs) This is my, my problem with Marilyn Robinson's writing is that there is no, I don't, I hardly ever feel a sense of the good in um, like a harmony. Like there's, there's just so much attention to the sadness and the grief. um, And in a family like this, I'm not sure that that would be completely accurate. So hmm. I, I, and I'm not saying you should put a happy face on it. I'm just, there is, there is a sense there, there's this quality of such deep sadness and grief and loss um, and brokenness in, in her writing that is so beautiful and so necessary. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I'm not sure it's, the truest story of this family, right? And I, so. So is this where you see, last week you asked about the, the, yeah. the Wendell Berry, Marilyn Robinson comparison. Is this where you see that? Yeah, I do see that. I think that there's like so much of what she describes. And I understand this is a story about the sadness. I get that. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um. But I do, I do feel like it. After a while, it just feels like it's missing. Like it can't be this. It can't just be this. This isn't the whole story of this family. Like who is going to speak for the joy of this family, for the good things that were done, for the connection that they have? Um, not in a dismissive way, like everybody comes home from Christmas, but everybody misses Jack. But like 
this this was hmm. there there was a lot of goodness in this house but don't, and i don't yeah go ahead well I, for the sake of argument let's say for sure yeah. <laughs> for the sake of conversation not argument doesn't glory <laughs> doesn't glory remember she thinks about things that she has these sort of like fundamentally happy memories of but they're but they're just tinged with what was missing so like the way we remember things is so complicated yes because it's it is. rarely i mean again our sins don't happen in a vacuum and our memories don't either. Like our mem- right. memories are affected by so much. Like the, the way it happened in the moment has very little to do with how we, how we actually remember a thing that happened. Right. And so it's I th- true. Go, 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 go. Well, and there's, I mean, a lot of people speak about that. Who is it? Oh, I can't remember off the top of my head who it is that says that, um, that when we remember our life, we remember it, we can remember it with grief stained backward. Um, mm. And, and I think Sounds that's like what this, or something. somebody, somebody like that, like that's, that's what this book, that's what, that's what Marilyn Robinson's books do. Like they remember with grief stained backwards, like the, the grief that we're feeling now, um, you know, kind of haunts the past. Um, and I don't, and I think that's very clear in the novels. Like I, I don't feel like no, nobody is making the statement. This is the way it was. Like it's very clear that they had happy times as children, but the the current feeling of heaviness hangs over it and and haunts it like a ghost, as you said last week. Um, but your question about Jack earlier on page seventy five, um, at the bottom, there's um, the conversation. I think yeah, he's talking to. Um, He's talking to Glory about how, or Glory's telling him how their father wants them to get along better. Mm-hmm. Um, and he says, so he's worried about it. And she said, he worries about everything. It'll be fine. You've always known how to please him. There's a lo- That's a loaded statement, right? And then the next line, he shook his head. No, I could always count on him to be pleased with me. From time to time, often enough, I never understood it myself. He shrugged and laughed. What the hell? He said, I don't believe I've ever understood much of anything. And your question earlier, does Jack have this rootedness at home? Yes. But I think this speaks, I think, to the shame we were talking about earlier and also to just a general sense of bewilderment of like, I have been able to please my father and I don't know why, because I've never done anything good. I've never done anything to earn that. So it's crazy to me. What's your point about Boughton's nobility? He's done that on purpose. He's cultivated that posture towards Jack and he means it to be redemptive, but Jack just finds it confusing. This is really interesting. It's, it's so interesting that he then says, I'm not making any excuses or he says, I'm not making excuses. Right. And so he, and, and that's, it's, it's good that he's not making excuses and yet the book is forcing us to ask the degree to which Bowden is at fault. Like that question has to be there. We can't read the book without being willing to lay some blame for the conflicts and for what happened at Bowden's feet. Right. And I'm wondering, I I think this is a big part of all of Marilyn Robinson's work. I think you see it in Gilead, all of it that I've read. Um, It's this notion of abstraction. And we were talking about that earlier with the names. And right after this section, like on the opposite page, it, uh, they're talking about Ames. And he says, um, 
Well, she said, Ames is mellowed a little. At least he's not as abstracted as he used to be. <laughs> so much of that was loneliness, I think. And it would please Papa if you paid a visit to him. And this idea of living in, the ab- in abstractions or um, letting abstractions be the guiding principles of the way we interact with people, I think is a key part of what her books are about. And you see it like in, Glory recognizes it in the names, you know, that, that keeps coming up. Um, that this, that the, the, there's this abstraction that sort of hovers over the relationship between all the girls and their parents, between especially their father. And he has this deeply spiritual and rightly spiritual view of the world, but he has a hard time, like Ames has a hard time taking it out of the abstract realm in a way that is uh, human. Right. And I think that she is in a way criticizing that sort of Mm -hmm. view of the world that like you can't build relationships in abstractions. Mm -hmm. Um, They're not, they don't, you can't be rooted deep enough in them. Uh, You can believe in abstractions. You can have, you know, faith in them and in their, in their existence and their reality in like the concept that the world is ordered by them. But, but you have to find a way to manifest an abstraction in a really human way for those abstractions to moderate and modulate your relationships. Totally. And I think that her books are often about what happens when you fail to do that because in a way, to oversimplify it in a way, they're about uh, best intentions. Hmm. You know, we, we have best intentions and we don't often live up to them. Uh, and so what happens, and your intentions are guided by your you know, ideals driven by abstractions, ideals founded or birthed out of abstractions, I guess. Abstractions like, you know, glory and faith and things like that. Right. But, you ha- but if you don't, as I said, to repeat myself, to summarize, if you don't find a way to modulate or let those, ab- how to manifest those abstractions in a human way, then the relationships are impossible. They can't be guided by them. They just, they just become concepts that you talk about in relation to relationships, not <laughs> things that actually let you have relationships. Oh, that's so good, David. That's so good. I mean, that is, you just described the whole book, Gilead, right? It was Ames can't bless Jack. What kind mm. of effect does that have on him? And is that why? And then what we see in this book so far, in the first hundred pages that I'm seeing, you know the end. So, but what I'm But I don't remember is, it well. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I a lot of, it's been a number of years since I've read it, so. Okay, well- what we're seeing here is a claim that Bouton is making, I forgive my son, right? And, mm-hmm. and then a lack of engagement with that claim in relationship with Jack. And other than just being nice to him, which comes up over and over again and over again in the book, right? He's always telling Glory, thank you for being so kind to me. And it means nothing. And it's very clear it means nothing in the context of those conversations. He's just mm. saying like, you know, you don't thank, I mean, I have my friend Emily and I, whenever she's like, thank you for doing something. That's really nice of you. And I'm like, don't say that to me. You're my best friend. Like, I'm just going to be nice to you. You don't have to thank me anymore. Right. That's, this is, <laughs> you don't thank your mom for being kind enough to refill the toilet paper in the bathroom. It's just part of the concrete nature that's not an abstraction in a, in a meaningful relationship. Mm. You thank strangers it's a, Yeah, it's the expression kindness. of your affection. 
yes, you thank strangers for kindness, not your closest. If you feel like you need to thank them, there's like, look at the relationship. And that's, (laughs) um, which doesn't mean like to be polite. Like you should thank your mom for being nice to you. But the claim, like, that's very kind of you is right. Like that's, that's Mm. not something you should have to say to your sister. Like that's something you say to a stranger. Like, thanks for it's holding all, the door open for me. That's like, really oh, kind of you. this is a surprise. You. Yes, yes. That's the implication um, is that it's an unusual behavior, right? Yes. And so, yet, also, yeah. if you live in the South, maybe you have a different perspective on maybe what's so. on maybe what the so. what the norms are. <laughs> right. Right. Yes. But like, like I picked Jack up from school, my Jack, um, and who doesn't so far mirror this Jack, Lord have mercy. Um, <laughs> um, but anyway, I'll pick him up from school and, and, you know, he gets in the car and he's like, he doesn't say, mom, it's so kind of you to come pick me up from yeah. school today. He What's might up? thank me for it. Right. He might, like, Thanks for coming. You know, every once in a while, like, give me a, give me a, a, a purposeful kind of honoring yeah. Yeah, of yeah. me as his mom. It's probably like, um, Hey, I'm hungry. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yes. What'd you bring me to eat? Right. Yes. Oh, families. Um, <laughs> Kids, but, they're all ungrateful wretches. Just kidding. Right. But, and Jack is doing, they're all trying to meet each other, but they treat each mm-hmm. other, you know, they're just a little too polite in some senses. Yeah, even, even Bowden, he's like, everything he says has an exclamation point on the end. Well, then maybe the thing is that what, yeah, yeah which is interesting for people, for someone who's like tired, doesn't want people to yell at each other. Um, (laughs) Maybe the thing is that, that one of the signs of healing is going to be then that Jack no longer calls him, sir. Like, I mean, that gets implied in this section, but like he drops the pretense of, of politeness, right. You know, the pretense of like uh, ritual or roles or whatever. And it becomes something that's, it's actually a relationship and they can, you know, Bowden basically asked him to do that, but Jack's not there yet. Mm-hmm. And so if he can do that, maybe then the sort of barrier of politeness will uh, will sort of fade away and they'll be able to, you know, actually interact as as human beings without like these, being without being guided by like rules. Because um, mm-hmm. like when you have a truly healthy relationship, you're not, you're not guided by rules. Right. It's it's more like patterns, right? That that guide the way you interact with somebody. You're not like, well, now is the time that I say this kind of thing because you have done this behavior for me at this time of right. day or whatever. You know, um, in a way, like you don't you the the norms don't have to the, the like social norms don't don't have to guide you when you're in a truly healthy relationship with somebody. Yep. Because norms like that, like and politeness, are things that like help you. Well, it's the, mystery and, it's the mystery and manners idea, <laughs> right? That, that Flannery O'Connor says, like any, in good literature, in good writing, she's talking about writing, but in mm-hmm. good fiction, you're trying to get below the manners and into the mystery. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I think there's mm-hmm. such a veneer of manners still in the first hundred pages. They're kind of getting there. Mm-hmm. They're kind of getting there, but there's just, it is like, strangers being nice to each other and all living in the same house. And one of them Mm. is like desperate for this connection. I mean, Boughton's just, Mm. he's so sweetly 
annoying about how much <laughs> he wants to connect with his kids, mm. but without, you know, without messing up anything in the house. Mm. Right. Yeah. So, okay. Let's, let's kind of start wrapping it up by talking about some mm -hmm. things that we are going to be looking for. Cause it seems like, you know, I mentioned the idea that maybe Jack yeah. has to stop calling him, sir. Maybe this, maybe there's this also this idea then that can they start, is he going to allow them to start messing things up? Can things in the house change? Can they, can they mm -hmm. rearrange the furniture of, of the home in some way? W what are some other things that you think would be worth looking for as like symbols of, of progress? Well, I'm ashamed to admit that I didn't notice the TV being an addition, an important addition in the house. I I saw it as like the relational mm -hmm. gauntlet that it was, but I didn't see it the way you did, which was them adding something new to the house. Um, so I think that, that none that of them now, like at first that they can't figure yeah, out. How to right. And it creates this tension, which is what, which is what any, you know, I'm going to say something really counselor-ish right now, but <laughs> which is whenever you... Uh, make a change in any kind of dysfunctional family system, the entire unit freaks out for a while before, and adjusted before they adjust to it. Um, so that, that's... The, the last paragraph on page 100 that we read for today. Yeah. The television set stayed on the lamp table. Jack turned it on for the morning, noon, evening news, and turned it off again if there was nothing about Montgomery. His father ignored it completely. Yeah, but it so, stayed there. Yeah, it stayed there, and I, that's significant. That's it's an, it's an intrusion into the order of the house. And, that the father can't um, bring himself to do anything like to be okay with. Yes, and it creates disunity, and it I mean, it, it disturbs the order at first. Um, Despite so, it being their attempt to give him something that he might like. Yes. Yes. No, I think that that's like, so I'm going to be looking for that. You know what? It strikes me point. that in a way, bringing that TV home is their attempt to manifest the way they feel about him in a way that's not abstract. Like they're trying to huh. give a gift. Like they, none of them have really figured out how to speak words to one another. It's like maybe a love language thing. I don't know. But like they are attempting to express what they would, what they want, what they can't bring themselves to say in words by bringing this gift that allows other people to say words. Right. <laughs> right. Um, anything else you're going to be looking for? Well, yeah, Jack's secrets. Mm. I want more. I'm, I don't know what they are. What's your theory? So, what, what happened? Um, I mean, I think it's got to be about his kid. Is it? A, is, okay, so he didn't like uh, murder the, the lord of a big estate in Massachusetts and is on the run? Do Massachusetts have lords of estates? I, I need to move like there. A, so it's America, so I was like, it's not really, you know, he couldn't have been the like Lord of the Manor. Yeah, it couldn't be the Lord of the Manor. So once I got to the word Lord, I realized, okay, now I got to get to a state no, that might didn't. have you, something like that. <laughs> and Massachusetts, Massachusetts is probably the closest yeah. <laughs> thing. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't, I don't know. See, here's the thing about me, David. I am. Um, so, you know, I read a lot of murder mysteries. I mm -hmm. never try to figure out the puzzle. I just read the book. I don't, yeah, I don't like, either. Yeah. I just like follow the plot. I'm not like a guesser about the future of a book. Yeah. I me, just me wait and see what happens. So the only, the only thing that I do is sometimes I'll look for like, well, what is, what are the things the author is trying to do here? Mm -hmm. Like what are the signs of the person being a craftsperson? Yeah. So I'm not like, I can't wait. I mean, I'll like anybody. I'll be like, well, that would, Maybe it's that guy as I'm reading, yeah, but I don't like sure. try to do the puzzle work. Uh, like, as you say, 
Um, I did end Peace Like a River because I was so stressed out about the book and I had, I was like, <laughs> and I didn't want to read the end. So I just kept coming up with theories. Now that, that you that know was, the ending, <laughs> will you read it again or would it be too stressful? No, now I know the ending. I don't know if I'll read it again. I just keep, I've, I have all this close reads reading I have to do. So. Yeah, I know, right? Well, speaking <laughs> of which, that's a good segue because we do have good. our close reads uh, Patreon episodes. You can head over there and we, the first episode of our Lord of the Rings conversations uh, dropped today. Today is Wednesday, uh, September 16th, if you're listening sometime. A little more jollity on that yes. particular episode than and, there and, was today. On and the uh, Tim was able to join us for that one. And then we also have our good friend Ian Andrews joining us. So we have, a little, we have a little fellowship, exactly. Uh, and so we are working our way through Lord of the Rings. We talked about chapter one and then a bunch of other you know, general stuff about the book. So if you head over to patreon.com slash close reads, you can get access to that by supporting the show at any, at the $5 level or higher. And the, when you do that, that helps us pay for contributors, the technology, the, uh, the editor, you know, Logan's time who edits all our podcasts and turns them around so quickly. It helps us cover, um, the, the hosting fees, all sorts of things like that. So, we are really grateful for everybody who has supported the show there and hopefully the Sweet Show swag as well as the Lord of the Rings content over the next couple of months will help make it worth your while. So again, that's patreon.com slash close reads. Don't forget about Scully Academy. If you are looking for some supplemental tutoring or private full course instruction, head over to scolaacademy.com to learn more or to submit a tutoring request. Of course, you can also follow us on Instagram at close reads pods. You can join the Facebook group. Just search Close Reads in the search bar and click that join button and you will be entered into a world of much mystery and manners. <laughs> Indeed, that's very true. Uh, and uh, you can also follow uh, along with the newsletter at closereads.substack.com. I think that about covers all the bases. Anything else, Heidi? Any final thoughts? I have no final thoughts. Do you have any final thoughts? Oh, David, who do you relate to most in the book of the main characters? You asked me... Did I ask you that last week or this week? Yeah. No, you asked me that last okay. week. It's like, uh, it's only been here. I've only been an hour and I don't remember asking that. <laughs> uh, I remember asking it last week now though. Oh man. And I didn't ask <clears throat> you back, which was rude of me. Forgive me for my bad manners. But now I want to know the mystery. <laughs> um, does that mean that every time you say it's a good question, it's just you being polite? <laughs> no, I'm, I'm over being polite to you. We're past that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it makes me wonder now that you say that. Yeah. Well, I relate a lot to Jack's. I reckon what I identify with in Jack is the difficulty of um, saying what needs to be said sometimes. Hmm. Um, and also the difficulty of when people, like, so the idea that we talked about how Bowden and Glory are like trying to, uh, it's not just the saying of things, but like when things become expected of you. And you kind of recognize that, like acquiescing to that or like stepping right. into that is, is a challenge. But I think one of the great things about this book is that there's not a character in this book that I don't look like, look at and go, right. I'm in there. I recognize <laughs> yes. myself in that struggle or whatever. Um, Same. Our family, I don't think our family has like a black sheep scenario quite this, in this way. Um, but um, I was thinking a lot about how. There's this line in the book, I, th I think, about how there's a way that adults... Oh, she's talking about how she likes her other brothers in, a f in the fashion of right. adults becoming friends. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking about how 
relationships change so much over the years and how tight, you know, you might be with your siblings when you're younger, but then the sort of tightness you have as an adult is a sort of adult sort of relationship where everyone begins to have their own lives and their children and their own things going on. And that there's a sort of, um, um, there's a sort of intimacy in relationships between siblings that's both powerful and also like melancholy at the same time mm-hmm. because it's not what it was when you were 10. Right. In your, when you were, you know, best in friends. Of innocence and, yep. When you, you know, my brother and I are 18 months apart or whatever. And I look at my, my boys, my older two who are 14 months apart and, and as much as they fight and get bicker and all that, there is a sort of, um, there's a sort of sense in which they're like each other's whole world, you know? And right. when you're an adult, you know, I love my siblings, but, but, but that's, it's different, you know? That's and so I, I identify right. with the sort of, you kind of recognize that that's changed. And in a way you're sort of always kind of longing for that, but don't know how to do it right. anymore. Right. You know, yes. you're never, it's never going to be there. You're never going to be able to reach that same point of, of camaraderie, even with your siblings. Um, Cause everyone's, like I said, everyone's dealing with their own stuff. You know, we're dealing right. with our kids and our spouses or fiancés or jobs or dreams that didn't happen or things that are right. we're struggling with or, you know, shared enemies. <laughs> I don't know. I just threw that in there because <laughs> right. it felt like it was supposed to be there. I don't know. Felt um, right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there's just so much stuff that everyone's dealing with. And so I identify with this, that sort of underlying um, melancholy pathos. or nostalgia, yeah. pathos, rooted in nostalgia that's, that, that kind of hovers over the book. Um, even if it's even, I think we all, I think everybody who reads it as an adult feels that even if mm-hmm. you don't feel like your drama is as intense as the drama of glory and Bowden and Jack. Right. So, um, yeah, now that I've done the whole conclusion came back around and offered that for all the people who stuck with me through the, all the, the link, the link repeating. <laughs> 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 what about you? What, anything else you want to add now? Should we just go back and forth for a little while here? Po- like a post credits, uh, secret, secret ending <laughs> like a bonus a yeah. little bonus, it's the bonus track yeah yeah like in avengers when they go eat shawarma yeah, at the yeah. End. or or it's like when there's your favorite back when people had cds your favorite cd at the after the the final song it'd be like five minutes of silence yes. and there'd be like a live track mm-hmm. that's, what, that's yep. what this is like that's right do you want to add anything to the live track um, well, I'd probably need a concrete question in the real world and not an abstract <laughs> So, <laughs> is that or, a criticism? No, it's just, it's, uh, this is me saying what I need out of this relationship right now. So. <laughs> or we could just end it right here on that note. <laughs> Which flower uh-huh. most represents the trauma of your child? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Oh, sorry. Was that a little bit too direct? A Venus flytrap. <laughs> All right. Well, I think we should probably go ahead and end now. So yep. for Heidi White and whatever's going on in that metaphor, right? uh, I am David Kern. Thanks so much for listening. Until next week, happy reading. Happy reading.